Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different film each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. I'm John. And now that we've spent some time alone watching cute animal videos and taking long, cold showers in a feeble attempt to rinse our brains after our last episode on Faces of Death and Mondo Shockumentaries... We are back in the proverbial saddle with an episode that has been simmering for a while, and we're just really excited to finally be doing. Just yesterday, we all got together, made a huge pot of Capolini Alfredo, and watched a pile of our favorite flicks from the golden age of Italian westerns. So today, we are going to be talking about Sergio Corbucci's somber, snowy, spaghetti western masterwork, The Great Silence. che fa tremare i cacciatori di taglie quando lo incontra. Lo chiamano silenzio, perché dopo che è passato lui, resta soltanto il silenzio. All right, so usually I don't like doing spoiler warnings only because there's a slight expectation on our end that if you're listening, you've either have a general idea of what to expect or you've seen the film at hand. And most of the time, it doesn't really matter because our discussions are meant to be so broad. And we try not to like structure the show to just be some play-by-play of the movie, some point-by-point. But The Great Silence is so uniquely singular and just plain different from so many other spaghetti westerns that I really want to encourage you right off the bat that if you have not seen the film, watch it before listening to this episode. Or don't i'm not a fucking cop i don't give a shit so if you don't care we don't care but i guess i just generally you i kind of see the movie yeah. before you listen to any podcast about the movie and this one is is very very special to me so watch it please i i highly encourage you but also not to play devil's advocate here i think if you are somebody who isn't really interested in westerns or spaghetti westerns then maybe this episode could sell you on why they're so amazing yeah oh for sure for sure i don't understand anybody who doesn't like spaghetti westerns or westerns in general they're they're just so fucking awesome it took a little while for them to grow on me when i was a kid and i know sam this is something that we kind of have in common where we both were really into like cult horror movies as kids and it was the spaghetti western genre that sort of opened up the the world to us. Not exactly for me. So for me, it was American westerns first. After my you know obsessive period of only watching horror movies, my dad sort of brought me around by saying, "Hey, you know some of those movies you love, like a lot of the John Carpenter movies." are inspired by these Westerns from the 50s and 60s. And I think he sort of got me hooked with some of the Clint Eastwood movies. But then, you know, because Italian horror has always been one of my great loves, it was like, oh, of course I'm going to love all of these spaghetti Westerns, probably even more than the American Westerns. Yeah, and and The Great Silence is 
such a different one. Like, even after you watch a lot of these movies, The Great Silence is just like a fucking punch in the gut. I remember the first time I saw The Great Silence. It was a cold January night after it's already snowed. And it wasn't like that pretty snow, like what you get during Christmas when it's snowing. And it's like Santa's coming. It was that shitty, sludgy, like it snowed a week ago. It's still all over. It's that frigid night. I was like out of a breakup. I was really down and low, <laughs> and I was getting the Netflix discs. Oh, those and, were the golden days. And I would just yeah. get them randomly. I'd put like a million movies on there, but I wouldn't like control what was coming. So it would be like a surprise each time. Yeah. And I was like, oh, The Great Silence. This is Sergio Corbucci. He did The Mercenary and Companeros. He's like really fun, like shoot 'em up spaghetti westerns. Yeah. I'll watch The Great Silence at one in the morning, depressed in this fucking frigid winter night. <laughs> and big mistake. It it crushed me. I loved it, but it was I mean, I was in the right headspace for it. Yeah, and I think that's part of why we wanted to go with this episode. So we've been talking about doing a spaghetti western episode for a while, particularly this movie. But it seemed like it made sense to wait until December, till it's just about winter time, or at least I, I know it's not technically winter time until December twenty first or twenty second. But it fucking feels like winter time. Yeah. And oh, for sure. Regardless of what season it is, when you watch this movie, it becomes instant wintertime in your brain. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the other day when we were watching it, we paused for a minute, stepped outside, had a shared a cigarette, and we were surprised that the ground wasn't covered in snow. It felt like, whoa, this is weird. I wasn't expecting... You snow know. <laughs> or shaving cream. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so great. And the, the movie's... So the movie's gorgeous. Snow-covered, obviously. But you pointed this out, John, when we were watching. You were like, is that shaving cream? And I like was like, what are you talking about? It's snow, because there's like snow falling from the sky. And and we like, look at the look at the railing, and Sam, you're like, that's absolutely shaving cream. <laughs> The railing is covered in Barbasol. That's totally how it looks. It, like how it's sort of sloppy. It's like snow isn't fluffy like that. Yeah. But it's still beautiful. And that's something that I love about these movies is that they're so gorgeously shot. And the score is always so like sweeping and stirring. And then like you'll see how they're like, uh, well, we ran out of money for this little bit. So we just slopped a bunch of fucking shaving cream here because there's so much in every single shot for your eyes to wander to that it's I don't know. It's it's such a, a fucking interesting mix. Yeah. When we did a little sort of spaghetti Western weekend and I was kind of sharing our lineup on my Instagram. I had a couple people write in to say that they got to see the great silence on 35 millimeter Uh, in a theater. And I'm so jealous. So jealous. Like they all deserve to be seen in that sort of setting. I mean, arguably more so than a lot of other subgenres, but this one in particular, it's just so beautiful. I would love to see this in theaters. I mean, it means prints are out there, so it's a possibility. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah our, our time is coming. I, I feel certain about that. But Sergio Corbucci in general, I think, just has such a wonderful eye, not just for these great landscapes, but for shot framing and... The way he shoots violence is so just wild and chaotic that you almost have to see it on a big screen to even be able to take in everything that's happening. That was one thing that I wrote in my notes. And and when we were watching it, 
I felt like there were times where I was kind of like almost losing track of some of the character motivations and and a lot of like the the plot as it like we'll, we'll get into the plot later like the things that were developing because I was just getting lost in this like desolate snow covered nihilistic world and like it, it, you really just yeah it, 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 it sweeps you up and it, it, it takes you to some really really dark places it, it seems and that's one thing that I usually don't like <laughs> when I'm watching a movie like I, I, I like to have a good time especially with westerns because so many of them are just so fun and you're like oh my god we're having like an adventure and then when you get one that's like you're thinking about just how uh, uh, it's so hard to put into words. No, I understand. Like, like the like exploitation movies, a lot of the subgenres like kung fu movies and car chase movies, I want it to be upbeat and fun. And when you get the one that's that's just like a a downer, even though it's really good, you're just kind of like, oh man. But they're so good yeah. that you don't care. And actually, in a way, you're just like, no, this is even better because it's just it's this like curveball that you don't see coming and you're like, this is legitimately good and it's really making me feel something. It's not like just mindless entertainment for 90 minutes. It's really taking me someplace. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I prefer the darker Westerns and that's sort of what drew me into the subgenre, like regardless of country. And I think this definitely reminds me of some earlier John Ford things like The Searchers where it's just super bleak and all the characters are I don't want to say all the characters are unlikable because I feel like on past episodes we've talked about how certain types of movies we like to watch often you know Italian horror movies have these characters who are just terrible and they sort of exist so that you can watch them be killed or somebody take vengeance on them i think that makes up a lot of exploitation movies but here it's like there are some awful characters but in general everyone is compelling in in some sense and i feel like corbucci does that better than almost anyone yeah okay so let's let's back up a little bit and kind of get into the plot of the great silence uh the great silence is a movie about bounty hunters that are locked on a mountain in the winter what they're doing basically is there's there's a a troop of bandits that are on the mountain and the bounty hunters that are in this little town are like kind of nabbing them one by one and collecting the bounties and they're all led by klaus kinski who is at his loco in the english language version yeah and he's at his just deranged peak in this in, in a way that's like it's it's muted He's not like at, at like his Agir Wrath of God like Psycho Man, but you can see it bubbling under the surface. Yeah, he's definitely more restrained in this movie than he usually is and is calculating in a way that I think we were talking about when we were watching it that it's almost more chilling because he's he's so like rational and measured. I think what makes him that way is because he knows he's on the side of the law. The law is going to protect him. And and the thing is, like, you call them bounty hunters, but really they're bounty killers. They don't take anybody alive. They'll And they'll, like, lie, Which the cheat. sheriff points out at one, yeah. at one part in the movie. Yeah, and, and it's implied that 
the bandits that are on the mountain aren't bandits at all. They're just refugees. They're they're people that that have really committed very like a minor crimes. And being a refugee is not a fucking crime, but like in the eyes of the fucking law, it is. And they're just fucking killing them and bringing them down the mountain and collecting the money. And this character who who is he portrayed by this. Jean-Louis Trintignant, which I know is difficult to pronounce. Trintignant? Yeah, quite a French name. Yes. So he plays Silence, who is this black hooded bringer of death who never draws his gun unless someone else draws on him. And he often just shoots off people's fucking thumbs. He doesn't kill them. (laughs) He He just shoots off their thumbs. And he has a chip on his shoulder and a vendetta against all bounty killers because bounty killers killed his father and cut his throat in just the right way to strip him of his vocal cords. Hence Silence is his name. Yes. Tell me where he is and I'll let you go. Uh, I don't know. Oh, no. You know all right. He was with you in the mountains. I don't know where he went. I swear I don't. Let me go. And so I love so much that he's in this movie if you're not familiar with his work, and I think he definitely tends to be more in French and Italian art house movies, like he's amazing in Bertolucci's The Conformist, and is, I think, you know, he's still with us and is one of the powerhouses of European cinema. In my World War II book, I wrote about him in almost every chapter because he just has a way of always choosing these really difficult complicated roles and he worked with people like Alain Rob Grier a lot and the reason that he was cast in this movie is because Franco Nero apparently turned the role down and originally uh Marcello Mastroianni another of you know the history's greatest actors I guess was having a conversation with Corbucci about how interesting it would be to have one of these kind of anti-heroes in a Western be silent, which partly had to do with the issue of the way they recorded these films, the sound for these films at the time, which was there was this move towards having actors speak in English so that it could be broadly applicable for like an international market. But people like Mastroianni didn't speak English and neither did Trintignant. And so it was like, okay, well, we can yeah, cast. Yeah, win win. Yeah, it have was the like. Guy shut the fuck up the whole time. <laughs> you don't got to have someone dub him over in some way that doesn't feel right. Because I know when we watched Django the other day, the person who did the voiceover for Franco oh. Nero, it's just like, it's like, this isn't him. It's this isn't so, what he's supposed so to sound weird. like. It's so weird. It's like they got somebody doing an infomercial and not <laughs> understanding the plot of Django. Yeah. Yeah. Can I complain about something for oh, 30 please, seconds? Please. The Arrow Blu-ray release of Django, you get the dubbed, or which is terrible. Or you can get it subtitled, but it's not subtitled. It's closed captioning. So not only do you get the dialogue, you get the horses neighing. Gunshot. Yeah. Muffled laughter. Oh, my God. Insane machine gun firing. And, like, I understand. Have closed captioning. It's important to have it. Oh, for sure. But have the other one, too. But have another audio track that's just subtitles. Oh, my. Thank you. I just needed needed to shout into the Yeah, no, have closed captioning. 
And then have the other one too. Although, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. the extra mile. It's one of my (laughs) guilty pleasures to watch closed caption movies on Amazon Prime because of the demented way that they caption like incidental sounds. (laughs) There are some real fucking goblins working in Bezos' fucking or like is it an algorithm? Oh my gosh. I don't maybe I don't think I don't so think no no so absolutely either. not because there are some times where like it says demented laughter in parentheses <laughs> yeah or like ominous electronic soundtrack music <laughs> yeah. it's like Which what is, I mean honestly <laughs> it, for, it's as, true as, for closed captioning that's great sex it up you know but it's so fun but it, in these movies when you're trying to take them seriously yeah it and can be a little distracting for sure which I, I think is something that anybody who gets into European cult movies, whether it's horror movies or spaghetti westerns, you do, especially from the 60s and 70s, you do really have to get used to this idea that they were shot with actors from different countries speaking multiple languages and were always dubbed over in post-production. But here, it just, I think it's great that they don't even have to worry about that at all he just has no lines yeah. and he's well most of them were shot without even sound yeah like, they didn't oh, even yeah. bring the sound equipment and i love the stories that i i've always like read and heard of sergio leone when filming the good bad and <laughs> yeah. the ugly he's like he, they're they're filming the scenes and he's just riding on horseback with what i picture in my head to be like the boom box from do the right thing up above his head <laughs> just blasting the Ennio Morricone score for the film just to get everyone fucking jazzed Pumped. up. Yeah. Yeah, and telling people for certain scenes to just like in whatever their native language is to just count because they're going to be dubbed over anyway, which is also why I sort of wonder why this was an issue for Mastroianni and Trintignant to not be able to speak English. It's like, yeah, okay, I get this is a little bit later in the spaghetti western boom which i don't think we said is basically from like 66 to 70 even though there are some made after the fact it just yeah i I, i've always thought that like 66 to 70 or 69 that's the real like cream of the crop prime golden age for spaghetti westerns what year was fistful of dollars 66? 66, I believe. Oh, really? I thought it was a little earlier than that. I could be mistaken. I mean, I could be mistaken. I mean, well, I know they were released in the U.S. later because I think all three of them came out within like a year, year and a half of each other. 64. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That was so, early. Yeah, still that first was, Doctor Okay, era. so I... <laughs> So that was one question that I kind of wanted to ask you guys because it's something that I've always been curious about. Um, how the fuck did a bunch of olive oil drinking goombas in Italy come about to make just like you just canceled us? I mean, they, but, I think we have been long canceled. Okay, I well, just don't see how Mario villains made spaghetti westerns. <laughs> but how Mario? Did, how did these guys completely <laughs> revitalize what seems to be a like succinctly American genre? Like, how is it that in in Italy, the best westerns, in my opinion, were produced in this golden age. Some of it has to do with the fact that in the 50s, they were making so many peplum movies or, you know, uh, these sort of mythological adventure films that were often shot in places like Spain because of the gorgeous landscapes 
And I think while they were there, directors like Corbucci sort of took a look around and realized, wait a minute, this looks an awful lot like the American West. (laughs) And it just, it does sort of frustrate me a little bit when people talk about American Westerns and Spaghetti Westerns like they're the same. Like they definitely have some of the same themes, but American Westerns are all about what it means to be American and this idea of exploring a land that isn't yours and how you deal with the native population and how you establish things like law and order and what it means to to be an American man and stuff like that and the spaghetti westerns aren't about any of that at all like definitely masculinity but that's something that really kind of went over my head when I was younger is I didn't realize because I was thinking like, oh, wow, they're getting America so wrong. Like, this isn't what this is how this isn't how Americans are. And I kind of laughed at it when I was younger. I'm sure many people and, did, too. And now when I'm watching them, like with an older brain, I realize like, holy fuck, like these are very European films. Like these are very post World War Two, like sorting yeah. out. Well, I also think it's they're from the outside looking in. So they're taking American mythology, and keep in mind, this is the 60s when America's on fire, and there are assassinations, political unrest, and they're injecting the reality of that into American like pop culture mythology, and I think that's what really sets them apart. Like, you know, it's not like Roy Rogers and good guys wear white hats and, and bad guys wear black hats. It's like everybody's a bit you know in the gray area you know like the fucking dollars trilogy clint eastwood's a bounty killer he's not a fucking yeah you know go get him sheriff and i think that's it injects that reality into it i mean i do think they definitely grapple with italy's legacy in world war ii this like in so many of these movies, especially the ones made by leftist filmmakers and the majority of spaghetti westerns were made by people who were publicly avowed leftists. Like I think Sergio uh, Leone said that he was sort of a like a lazy socialist or an inactive socialist, but Corbucci was radical and you start to see a lot of the themes that would come in the Poliziotesque crime films of the 70s show up first in the Spaghetti Westerns because there's definitely that stuff that John just mentioned with violence in the United States, like political violence. But this is also the beginning of the Years of Lead, which I love talking about It's and what's, writing about. What's the Years of Lead? So it's from the late 60s to the early 80s in Italy. And it's this, you know, decade and a half spree of radical political violence, both by groups on the left and by groups on the right. You've got almost 500 murders, uh, bombings, political terrorism, kidnappings, like the murder of cops, the murder of politicians, cops murdering left-wing radicals in prison like just wild shit if you just look up years of lead or ani di piombo you your mind will be blown about just how psychotic this period was and so i think a lot of these movies grapple with this question of revolutionary violence like 
how do we solve the problems of political injustice? Like, do we react with violence? Is that wrong? Like, yeah. what the fuck do we do? Yeah. And often the movies don't seem to like make an obvious stand on it. Like the people no. who are engaging in revolution sometimes are doing it for opportunistic reasons. And the people that are like quashing and like, it's just, especially with Sergio Corbucci's The Mercenary and Compañeros, the way that those movies deal with those issues in this way that's like kind of flippant and like casually nihilistic. Oh, totally. You know, it's not quite like The Great Silence where the nihilism and the dread are just like oozing off the screen. They're, yeah, they're like this oppressive force throughout yeah. the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. And Compañeros is a little more lighthearted. He has more fun with it. Yeah. Well, I think it's because The Great Silence, the the title character hates these people and he's clearly out to get them yeah while the mercenary and companeros are people that either don't care or they're in the business of these villains and they're just like you know franco nero and like he's a mercenary and mercenary and he's yeah. an arms dealer in companeros and he's just like no this is the order that this is my business but it's what i love i think about the the way those two movies end is the sort of turnaround that Franco Nero's character has in both of them. Yeah. Where he starts off... And so these movies definitely are concerned with greed and capitalism and, you know, the kind of political corruption that was happening at that time in real life in Italy is you have all these characters who are just in it for themselves. Like, you know, we watched Campanieros. There's this general who proclaims to be this revolutionary figure. And at the end, he admits he doesn't care about the revolution. He just wanted to make a little money. And what's wrong with that? Yeah. But Franco Nero, his character is almost the same in both movies where he's helping the revolutionaries just to get paid. But that kind of cynicism that is such a focus of the great silence, by the end, it's like he either joins them or encourages them like to have hope and to to pursue this sort of dream of revolution in a way that I think is so delightful but that is you know obviously not in the great silence All right, so one thing about The Great Silence that is just, or about the character Silence himself that's so cool is that his hatred of the bounty killers is so palpable. And one of the early scenes in the movie, he encounters this one bounty killer who's just like eating chicken in the most disgusting way, like getting it all over his face. And what Silence does, since as a character he can't speak, and as a person he doesn't ever shoot first is he just kind of nudges and he antagonizes other bounty killers who he hates with a passion to draw and he keeps nudging this guy with the chicken to draw his gun and like keeps like 
he's like leaving the door open and just like fucking with him and like tensions are so high and they're all a bunch of fucking masculine testosterone fueled fucking dickheads that he he draws his gun and the silence just ices him right then and there and then shortly thereafter silence goes into the bar with klaus kinski who is clearly the like main antagonist of the film and and kinski's on to his game he's interrupting their their poker game and he's nudging Kinski. He's throwing like a cigar in his drink. Yeah, yeah. First he throws the match. Yeah. And Kinski like takes it out and he's like, aha, I see what you're doing, and goes to sip it. And then he throws the fucking cigar in. Say, boy, you're trying to force me to draw, ain't you? I know your system. And I know you're supposed to try and kill me. But I'm not losing my temper of that, I'm sure. <laughs> if anybody draws first gotta be you and and this like game that they're playing kinski's he's wise to it and he's not yeah they warned him the the main like capitalist banker baddie who wants kinski to kill silence and he refuses to do it because he won't put money on yeah yeah, put a bounty on him and then i'll fucking exactly yeah but he tells tells him his trick which is funny it's pretty much silence's secret weapon is to stand your ground law (laughs) (laughs) fuck which i think is in a way also like makes you question his motives too because it's so clear that the reason he's doing this is his parents were killed by bounty killers by these sort of same type of ruthless bounty killers one of whom is luigi pastili's character Pollocut, who becomes the banker so there's this whole like personal connection and i feel like all of these sort of hyper masculine subgenre movies when somebody is out to get revenge the movie makes you question like are they doing this for the right reason right totally and the scene that you were talking about with the chicken eating you know super gross dude yeah it's like you feel really bad for the woman so the reason that silence kills him is because he encounters this old woman whose son was killed by the chicken eating bounty killer and they sort of promised her if you bring your son in we'll arrest him we'll take him to a fair trial and i don't think we've mentioned but that's what all these bounty killers do is they lie shamelessly to people and tell them you know come out Put your weapons down. Surrender yourself. We're not bad guys. We understand. We'll take you in. You'll have a trial. It'll be fine. And of course, that's all a ruse. And they just shoot them as soon as they come out with their weapons down. And so it's like you want silence to kill them. But at the same time, once you figure out that the bounty killers are using the law to just fucking shoot people and make money it sort of makes you feel a little gross about what silence is doing too, because he's just like using, like you said, their stupid testosterone brain nonsense to provoke them so that he can legally murder them. So it's like, where's the line? But where silence, one thing that kind of humanizes them though, is that he takes money from the old lady who pays him to kill, but The other lady, Pauline, whose husband is killed by Loco, Klaus Kinski, he doesn't take anything. When she says, like, I have nothing to give you, he's sort of just like, ah, fuck it, and goes to the bar and starts shit anyway. 
I think. Yeah, he doesn't take advantage of people. Right. So he he definitely is on the right side of the sort of moral equation here, but he's still not he's definitely more of an anti-hero than a hero. Yeah. Which I love about this movie. Right, right. Which is one of the things that makes spaghetti western stand out from American Western. Yes. And I think some of the later revisionist American Westerns, as they're usually called, have that same sort of thing where there are way more anti-heroes than heroes. But that, I think, is what makes spaghetti Westerns more exciting to me, is they deal so in a much more subtle, complicated way with these issues of law and order and justice and just th- this idea of in earlier American Westerns and even some 60s and 70s American Westerns, this idea that if you follow the law and you follow these sort of spoken and unspoken rules of social order, your life will be fine. And these are like, no, they won't. Rules of the law exist for rich people to exploit poor people or for the powerful or people who see themselves as powerful to exploit the weak. And I think, you know, I Charles brought this up earlier, but it's very hard for me to watch these movies and not think about Italy and World War II and the way that the Italian government took advantage of its own people and and just Italy's attempts to grapple with that. And certainly a lot of the artists' attempts to grapple with that. I mean, you see it in Pasolini's movies for sure and Fellini and... Like, plenty of people making not just spaghetti westerns. For sure. Absolutely. Well, what's really neat is this is the second in what's called his Mud and Blood trilogy, unofficially. I don't think he, like, set out to make it a trilogy. Yeah, I love that it's called Mud and Blood. And it's so muddy. They're fucking muddy as shit. But the two later ones, this one and The Specialist, all have this bumbling sheriff who actually means well. And he kind of, like, represents that old school... Like the old school key values of the Western, right? You know, yeah, honor yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. But he's always just like no match for the, you know, like no. the, the grinding gears right? Of... These sinister mechanics of corruption and greed yeah. and capitalism. He's like absolutely out of his depths. That's intentional. He's definitely oh, saying sure. something for with sure. that. Yeah, and uh frank wolf who plays the sheriff here he's just so good in the role because he doesn't have that like dumb comedic energy that sometimes sheriffs do in westerns and spaghetti westerns like he's aware of the world around him he's just like sick of people's bullshit yeah and after their encounter with silence in the bar between kinski and silence at one point, Kinski was going to grab his gun and shoot him. And that's when the sheriff steps in and shoots Kinski's gun away. And arrests and, his ass. And arrests Kinski, basically in an attempt to save his life. Yeah. He also just hates him so he much. Him, and I love sure. how undisguised that is. Like, yeah. he confiscates his money. <laughs> yeah. So he he has him on horseback. And they're trudging through the snow together. The sheriff and Klaus Kinski's character, Loco. And and Kinski, the fucking wily son of a bitch that he is, has different bounty bodies all buried, buried in the snow throughout the, the landscape. And one pile of bodies he has, and he gets the sheriff to let him off his horse so he can piss. 
And the sheriff, like, turns around because he's, you know, a respectful guy. And he lets him piss. And Kinski's digging in the snow. And he pulls out a rifle that he knows is, like, buried with some body. And instead of and when, and when the sheriff turns around, he puts his hands up. And you think Kinski's going to shoot the sheriff dead right there on the spot? But he shoots the ground under his feet. And the sheriff is standing on a frozen lake. And he just has him fucking fall into the ice. And, and they don't show him, like, suffering or anything. And in my head, I was thinking, like, oh, they didn't show him die. He's going to come back later, like, shivering. But no, he did die. He fucking died in the goddamn and ice there. And he just disappears. And, but, oh, and it's so, so shocking. And it's plotted because Kinski's like, if we, ta- if we walk, like, take the ice way, we'll, uh, we'll get there faster. So he's planning this the whole entire uh, time. Yeah, and he sa- I think he says something like, we'll get there faster and there won't be any bandits that way, right. which, of course, there are. But I love that there's a scene, this scene with the sheriff and Kinski and the bandits where there's about to be this showdown and the sheriff talks to the bandits like they're people, says if you go to town, because they're they're starving, they have no supplies. Like in the beginning of the movie, they take the sheriff's horse and kill it and so that they have something to eat. And so you would think that the sheriff might want revenge on them, but he is sympathetic and he yeah. tells them if you go to town you can get some food and so there's this sort of great moment where violence is disrupted by people just talking to each other like, like humans uh, yeah and there's that similar moment in Campaneros where towards the end of the movie they have all these discussions about is responding to violence with violence the right thing to do? And the answer is sometimes it's inevitable, but, like, not always. The way that these movies have all of these characters just, like, constantly demasculating each other and debasing each other in all these, like, different ways that are sometimes funny to watch. Very funny. But, and then when there's, like, a moment where there's, like, an ounce of compassion that's shown, it, like, is like, oh, gosh. It's like a light has been, like suddenly shown on this like dark and fucked up world that's like guys stop fucking shooting each other you know like look there's bread here you can be warm by the fire you don't have to and and in the great silence there's very little of those moments or what i love so much about it and what i think makes it feel so gutting is You have the sheriff who's like kind of an asshole, but he's fundamentally a nice guy who's trying to do the right thing. And he wants to help these bandits and he wants to make the town this place where people can live and it's not just this violent, greedy free for all. And the townspeople are on the same level as the sheriff. And they're also like there's this such a heartwarming scene where they all work together with like the whorehouse and the saloon and they all just like have this food drive and they collect all this food for these bandits but it's just the bounty killers who fuck everything up it's like everyone else wants to live together in harmony to me oh and the banker sorry the banker is really he spearheads it he's no good and to me it's it's funny how the sheriff in the movie doesn't really feel like a stand-in for police it's it's the bounty killers who feel like yes. the police or like the black shirts in Italy or or fascists. Well, because they have all those lines over and over again throughout the movie saying we're just following the letter of the law. It's yeah. like they right. indeed are. The sheriff is is the old law, like like the idea he's, of he's the like, yeah. old he's like law. a common yes, yes. sense law. Right, right, right. And it's more human, like something that we should 
inertly have from being human. It's this sort of like sense of right and wrong. Exactly. Like moral law. Whereas yeah. they're following law as it's written down and decided upon by government. Which is usually trash. Yes. And why they <laughs> and why they always win too. Like they Yeah. There are different versions of the ending. We getting into it? Well, just because we were talking about the scene where the sheriff gets killed, in the like happy ending, they take advantage of- Wait, the happy ending? Yeah, so there's a happy ending version. So as I said earlier, part of why these movies were dubbed is because they were, Italian producers were hoping that they would be able to be marketed to as many audiences as possible. So not just Italian audiences, but other countries in Europe and England and the United States. And I think there's this sense that for British and American audiences, you have to have these more upbeat endings, which tracks with Hollywood movies. But they wanted to make him shoot a version of the movie that was like more Christmas themed. What? Yeah. Well, it was even set to be released in, in Christmas time. Yeah. <gasps> and, and to to other markets, I think in Hong Kong, it was illegal to have a movie with a with a bad ending, with an unhappy ending. Well, it was like that from the Hollywood production code for yeah. a while was like yeah. if somebody did something bad they had to be punished for yeah, it there couldn't be there couldn't be suicide shown yeah, there the crime does not pay ending yes so basically they take advantage of that scene that you described where kinski shoots the ice the sheriff is is implied but not directly shown to fall in and die and you know drown freeze to death what have you but he's never shown or really mentioned again. And so in this like... He's just on ice for a while. Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ, Jennifer. <laughs> Sam, give me my phone. <laughs> Hand me my phone. I'm calling the fucking police. We got to get this man out of here. You're going to call Loco to We're come? Loco. We're fucking shoving Collect you his head. bounty on John's dad jokes. <laughs> uh, in the happy ending... They take advantage of the fact that you don't see the sheriff actually killed. And so wow. he, it's like implied that he saves himself and staggers back to town and shows up just in time to save the day at the end. Wow. So but the thing is, though, which is like that's not a movie that anyone no, wants. That's that's not how this movie ends. Yeah. The, the gut punch ending. It's it's what the whole movie leads up to. It's everything about the movie just put into, it's a perfect ending. You can't end any other way. It's really, it's what makes it so fucking singular. I, I, I've seen movies that have downbeat endings before. Like it's not that like, this is the movie that invented the fucking ending where they don't ride off in the sunset. I mean, some people ride off in the sunset, but to see, to see a movie like this, that's like so fucking downbeat and nihilistic and and in the end, for Kinski and his his band of bounty killers to fucking shoot to like just they murder the whole town. They murder basically. the whole fucking town. Absolutely torture and disfigure silence 
and and kill him in the end. It's brutal. And and then they they ride off. And like the last words that Kinski says is, "They all got prices on their heads. We'll be back to pick them up later." And it's just like, Jesus fucking Christ. Well, like, we we didn't even talk about his introduction really, where he just fucking kills all these people and just drags the bodies along. So the way that the sheriff silence and loco all meet for the first time is they're traveling by stagecoach to the town. And when Kinski gets to the stagecoach or when it like shows up to the point to pick him up, he has all these fucking bodies hoisted onto the top of the stage. It's so brutal. Yeah. It's, it really, really is. And we should talk about, I mean, I know we mentioned how he gives a more restrained performance, but like this is such a really critical point in Kinski's career because he started off in the 60s, mostly in German creamy films, which we'll definitely have to do an episode oh, yeah. on oh, yeah. at Our some creamy point. episode is coming. That, but they're sort of like zany, if you haven't seen any. They're precursors to the giallo, and they're these zany crime movies. That yeah, I remember you described them once as like Scooby-Doo. Adult Scooby-Doo. Yeah. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> Pretty much. But like he got his start in those, and then right around this point, really transitioned hard into spaghetti westerns with bullet for the general which is just before this in 67 and like definitely in the late 60s did other euro cult work worked with jess franco worked on some of the uh macaroni combat movies uh, and i fucking love those macaroni combat flicks those like man on a mission fucking nasty during world, world war ii, II shit yeah. there's this one that i really want to track down I might be getting the title wrong, but I think it's called like Five from Hell. Yep, that's I think Kinski's first big macaroni combat. It was described to me as this really zany, wacko man on a mission movie where like some of the characters, they travel around with uh, trampolines that they like bring to like <laughs> the gates of like, I don't know, like concentration camps and like German to fucking military and rescue to people. jump over. They're doing all these crazy like trampoline acrobatics to... It reminds me a little bit of uh, that movie that we watched together. Sabata? Yes. Yeah, Sabata. I mean, a lot of the really fun spaghetti westerns, the things that make them fun are just like the inventiveness of like how many different ways can we fucking show a guy get shot with a gun standing down a long, dusty <laughs> and, street. And to mix with their energy, like they they feel comic booky. Yeah. Yes. Oh, pulpy and fun. Yeah, like the, the camera works, very energetic. I used to watch TNT a lot and they would play Westerns and Western shows and like it never grabbed me. And then one day they played the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. And it was like hearing electric guitar for the first time. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh, okay. This is fucking cool. Yeah. And that's I, when I fell I had in love this, with Westerns. This, the same experience too. I, I always thought of them as just this like stuffy shit that my fucking dad liked. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck about this. You know, I want to watch fucking someone's head explode in scanners for the fifth time. Right. And it it was the good, the bad, and the ugly when I was like, I was like watching it on this TV. We had a TV in one of our rooms that was like really high up on the ceiling. And it like, it was a small fucking TV because it was the 90s, you know, and TVs weren't that big back then. And it was like way the fuck up there. And you had to like squint to see it anyway. And I remember like sitting down to watch this movie because it was on. Dad, my dad was like, oh, this is a great movie, great Western movie. I'm like, yeah, sure, dad. And I was just fucking enwrapped 
for the nine and a half hours it took to watch it. It was also <laughs> it was on TV. And yeah, they got commercial breaks. Yeah, and, it was definitely like a th- three hour, even with the U.S. cut, which is like thirty minutes shorter than the the, the, the like the director's cut. Yeah, and it, it just I mean it it opened up the floodgates for me. And then like once I got a taste for these movies, I had to. I had to see every movie in the Dollars trilogy. I remember as soon as the movie ended, a few weeks later, the DVD came out, that like white, good, bad, and the ugly DVD. Yeah. Remember that one? I know. I used to have that. Oh, me too. I I bought it. It's one of the few movies that I was like, I have to buy this and I have to watch it now. I still have yours. It's it's in a bin under my bed. You got my fucking DVD? Jesus Christ. Right above your head is the... Slightly, oh, yeah. slightly later version of that, which was released as a whole box set with all four of the movies. Oh, always, it's got yeah. If it's, uh, it has Ducky Sucker also. Yeah. I always kind of forget about Ducky Sucker. It's which, the weakest, but I still like it. Yeah, I got a soft spot for it. You know what's funny? It came out after uh, the Mercenary and Companeros, and feels more like those. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Than... And my problem with it is that I wish. And I love fucking Sergio Leone. I think he's the fucking he's the king of the Sergios. Let's just say. No way. Oh, uh, you like her? You're a Carbucci girl. Yeah. Good for and you. I like good Sergio Salima too. Sergio Salima. I know, he's like got those some guys. In his bag. The good, the bad, and the ugly is a desert island movie for me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It, it, it's it's tied at number one for my favorite film of all time. I think. But anyway, it is great. Duck Yasaka. I wish was just like 20 minutes fucking shorter like like sergio leone was making a fun western but he was still kind of in good bad and the ugly brain and was like i need to make this the sweeping epic and it's like dude you're making a fucking well i don't think he even really wanted to make that movie i think it was one of those deals where like if he made another western for this company they'll give him the money to make the movie he really wanted to make which at that time was probably i think he was trying to make once upon a time in america for a long time yeah and he was working on a Stalingrad movie with Robert De Niro, but he yeah. died. Yeah. Holy shit. That Robert De Niro was going to play an American journalist stuck in Stalingrad during the- um, The siege. The siege. Thank you. And, yeah. Uh, that's going to be like a three and a half hour epic. I, I have definitely a sort of mental list of movies that if I had a time machine and could change the events of history that I- would really want to be finished yeah. just, just so that yeah. I could see it. But like, can you imagine his Siege of Stalingrad movie? Holy like, shit. It, it's so funny to think like all these directors that all the studios pretend to cherish just fucked over and never let them make their like big movie. Like Orson Welles wanted to make Don Quixote, right? Yeah. He and tried for decades. Stanley Kubrick was Napoleon. I think he wanted to make a big Napoleon epic. Yeah. Like a, I think a riff on or a remake of the Abel Gantz movie. Yeah. And like they're money men who like now act like oh these highly respected well directors they, they only say that because they want to be able to make fucking money off of DVD box yeah. sets and Blu-ray box sets of their work after the fact. It's bullshit. A <laughs> little wimp. He would know a new idea if it hit him in the pachanga. He wanted some new ideas. I could have told him some new ideas. Well, why did you let him talk to you that way? What do you mean? You fight the boss, man? Yeah, tell him your ideas. He's a person like everyone else. I'm sure. Look, I know these great. people, baby. They are rich and they're mean. They won't listen to me. Well, then why not fight harder? Make them listen. Because I need this goddamn job lined up for next summer. <laughs> My dad calls me today. He says, with good news, you know, he says Uncle Paul could finally get you into union. Oh, what, what union? House painters and plasters, local number 179 at your service. I have a 
quick question for you guys, and you guys will see this more than I could. And maybe I'm just like totally seeing something that's not there. Klaus Kinski, totally Germanic in this movie. He's Germanic and in real life. Whoa, pump the brakes. When he kills the sheriff, and the sheriff's like, you know, you're going to be in trouble with the law. He's like, I only follow the one true law, the survival of the fittest. And then at the end, takes after he kills Silence, takes his German Mauser pistol. Is this like supposed to be a setup for for the the Nazis? I or am I just so, reading way too much? No, of this? I was having the same feeling about the mercenary. Oh yeah. Was it the no 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 no? I was having the same feeling about the big gun down where there's the German uh military officer who shows up and is like clearly coded to be a fucking Nazi. But it's funny that you ask that. I think because I wrote that book on World War II movies, it's impossible for me to see it any other way. But I also read this anecdote about the shooting of the movie where Frank Wolf, who plays the sheriff, fucking hated Klaus Kinski because Klaus Kinski apparently said to him, so Frank Wolf was Jewish. And oh, all right. Well, I see where this is going. Kinski insulted Frank Wolf and said, I don't want to work with any dirty Jews. And for those of you who don't know Kinski's history, he he was a terrible person, which yeah. is a subject for another day. Because An absolute I, fucking nightmare. Yeah, man. I, I'm sure we will do more episodes on some of his films. So we don't need to get into his whole life right now. But he was German, born in... Uh, I believe Dansk, which is also Danzig, is the German name. So, like, he was born in what is now Poland, but when he was a kid, it was Germany. As a teenager, was conscripted into the Wehrmacht and didn't really serve on the front very long. I think wound up in a prisoner of war camp where that's how he got into theater and got into acting, was in the POW camp. So... Like, yeah, he was an actual Nazi for a minute, but (laughs) mostly from what he says, which you can't really trust, it was just like like so many other German teenagers, he was kind of forced, and that was just, you know, it was not an option. You either got conscripted and died on the front, got sent to a POW camp, or you got executed or went to prison or went to a concentration camp. Of course, he did have a choice, but I digress. He later said that he wasn't anti-Jewish and he wasn't really insulting Frank Wolf. He was just trying to piss him off so that it would help with Frank Wolf's performance, which is the sort of narcissistic bullshit that Klaus Kinski would say. Like, oh, I wasn't really insulting him. I'm not really a bad guy. I'm not really anti-Semitic. I just wanted there to be animosity between us. But regardless of what version of the story is true, I just love, and I know we talked about this a minute ago, how much the sheriff fucking hates Loco. (laughs) And richly deserved. Because why else would, would... Silence have that German gun the whole movie. It's never explained. Yeah. You know, it and looks like Han Solo's gun. For sure. And I think that like a lot of these movies it does look like Han Solo's gun. What's so interesting is that they really do distill historical moments, but through this fucking crazy Italian Western lens that like it's so it's so jarring sometimes. 
like remember that movie that you watched or that you played for us several months ago? It was a spaghetti western, but the whole film was a retelling of the JFK assassination. Oh, the, the Price of Power. The Price of Power. Yeah, with uh, what a the, wild movie! What an insane concept. The whole thing is it's like beat for beat the JFK assassination with like McKinley or something. Yeah, they they try to say that it's like the William McKinley assassination because it's supposed to be set in conventional Western times. So it has to be in the 19th century. And- yeah. And they have like the motorcade drive by, yeah. but it's just this, this crazy thing to see an Italian film crew with actors from all over Europe doing this like very recent American historical event through the lens of the Western. And I think that you're you're dead on when you're saying that Kinski is often coded as a Nazi in these films because they're they're distilling World War Two, and they're they're doing all of these things just in fucking spaghetti Western movies geared toward Americans. And it's the so next crazy. one, The Specialists, has hippies in it. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. Yeah, and I think to a degree, so does. Compañeros, where the 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 sort of like student revolutionaries are supposed to be a stand-in for the student protesters yeah. who were all over European and American cities in the late '60s. But something I don't think we mentioned is that Corbucci intended the Great Silence to be a response to the assassinations of Che and Malcolm X, and I think to a degree JFK. So it's like he's sort of baking all of that into this movie, which I think is why it feels so nihilistic. It's like this sense that all of this revolutionary action that the left in Europe has been working towards has built up so much momentum, but it just, it's like, there's a sense that they just can't win. You can't win because the powers that be won't ever let you. They won't ever fucking let you. And they have their boots to your neck at all times. And they shoot your thumbs off and <laughs> put you into the coals. Yeah. And like and that's why the great silence being set during winter, that like that icy feeling that you get while watching it is very similar to the feeling you get when you're defeated. When your goals and your and political ambitions, well, not political ambitions, but your amb- your ambitions for the world to be a better place just feel so impossible and hard to grasp that you are fucking frozen in the snow with no fucking thumbs. You could say it's the winter years of idealism. You, I mean, <laughs> here is the winter the of, season our season of our discontent. discontent. <laughs> yes, yes it, it is. Although Kinski who I think is a perfect Richard III, definitely brings some of that energy to, to Loco here. Do you want to know a cool factoid that I just discovered about Kinski in this? Sure. He was hired because he could emulate Boris Karloff's character in Black Sabbath. They have the same like They're, yeah, vampire. He's inspired. Like, what? Yeah, his yeah. character. Yeah. Apparently, so I feel like I, I was also reading about that earlier and it kind of makes me want to rewatch the great silence again because it apparently is hugely influenced by by black sabbath that wow the the mario baba movie and i'm definitely on your wavelength about watching this movie again yesterday when i was watching it like i felt like a fucking drooling idiot at times because i was just so 
stunned by like the landscape and just like lost in this fucking nihilistic death spiral that like I, I feel like I missed so much and I, I can't wait to watch this film again. It's such a fucking great movie. It's so it's so good. Talking about Kinski, have you guys ever seen Venom? Oh my god, I love Venom so much. It's we will so have good. to do a Venom episode at some point. Okay. Witching hour! <laughs> um, have you seen it, Charles? No, I never heard of it. All right, it's a killer snake kidnapping movie. But here's the here's the thing. I won't spoil anything. But the two people involved in the kidnapping is Klaus Kinski and Oliver Reed. And I would Who do anything. hated each other. Do anything. To, to be on set and watch those two argue. The, yeah, there's a scene, and this is all I'm going to say. There's a scene where they're arguing over alcohol, and Klaus Kinski <laughs> slaps Oliver Reed, and the facial, yeah. it's Ugh. it's truly breathtaking. To watch those two go at it would be the King Kong versus Godzilla of real life. I would do anything. <laughs> I would pay any ticket price. And I feel like in this case, Oliver Reed is King Kong and Klaus Kinski might be Godzilla. I mean, uh, I Kinski's don't know. Like, more of a Ghidorah. He's more of a Ghidorah. K- Kinski's scarier, yes. but I Oliver Reed's a, a, a monster. A force of nature. Yeah, like he, I mean, just size alone. I think he's like two Klaus Kinski's. Yeah, when you see Oliver Reed dripping in sweat with his fucking <laughs> nose just swelling, you don't want to cross him. Either way, it's a fight I would... Yeah, over Mike Tyson versus anybody. It would be Klaus Kinski versus Oliver Reed. Yeah, we definitely have a Venom episode at some point in our future. But something that I, you know, to your point about how you really want to watch this again because you feel like you miss things. Something I noticed watching it again this time was two things in particular that are sort of tied together, which is the role of women in Corbucci movies. So Westerns and spaghetti Westerns are not usually kind to their female characters. They are often second-class citizens. Yeah. The the women are dismissed in these movies. And like, even like when there's like sex workers and scenes, they're, they're almost on, they're shit on and they're props and they're not just shit on by the characters. They're almost like shit on by the scripts. Well, and I think this, reminds me of what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode where I said if you're not really into spaghetti westerns and you're a little bit reluctant to watch this movie before listening to our episode maybe our episode will bring you around and John said you know I don't understand how anyone could not be but I do and I agree with that yeah but weird I do think there are some people who are not into these kinds of movies that are so entrenched in these masculine like chauvinistic worlds but i think they're important to watch and they're fascinating because they say so much about how society views men and traditional masculinity and the way that violence is tied to masculinity but corbucci i think is one of the few directors who in almost all of his movies has interesting roles for strong female characters And that is nowhere clearer than in The Great Silence with Vanetta McGee, who plays Pauline. Yeah. She, like, the script doesn't look down on her. It doesn't look down on the other women in the town, including the sex workers. Like, 
it's just such a different look at spaghetti westerns and she's not just sort of relegated to being this kind of side character like somebody's wife or just their sort of sex toy she's like a character in her own right and has her own motivations and also has this great genuinely erotic eventful full of feeling sex scene with silence and there are so few consensual sex scenes in spaghetti westerns for sure it really stands out you don't really see the heck and kind they're of stuff vulnerable in these movies. yeah they're, they're showing vulnerability and like and, and it's those moments in in this film that make its nihilism so impactful because you can see the path you can see the path where things can be better and it's in the food drives. If it's everybody's in- just miserable all the time, it doesn't hurt as much, especially at the ending. And the fact that she and Silence fall in love, I think Corbucci was really thoughtful in the writing of this film with her character and the casting. I mean, this is really her first movie, and she would go on to continue working in the US in lots of black exploitation movies. She's in Blackula. She's in one of the Shaft sequels. She's in fucking Repo Man. Yeah. Whoa. Well, Alex Cox is a huge spaghetti western huge. fan. He's I know he's wrote at least one book, but I think he's wrote a few. And he does a bunch of like if you look carefully, a lot of the Blu-ray releases of Sp- Spaghetti Westerns, he's often hired to do the commentary tracks oh, wow. because oh, he's so an expert. Well, one of the ways this movie got its cult following, he had a um, a show on in in the UK where he would introduce movies. He would have his introduction. And oh, he was a little Joe Bob Briggs in yes, the UK? Yes, and he played The Great Silence, and that was one of the ways oh, this movie cool. took over. Well, she, I think is so instrumental to why this film is important because he intentionally, he being Corbucci intentionally chose to have a relationship between a black woman and like a strong black character who isn't just like you see black characters in other spaghetti Westerns, but they're usually in these kind of awful roles or they're in the movie for like two seconds and you know, the typical Hollywood bullshit. But she, as I keep saying, has this really robust role and this like genuine romantic relationship with silence. And it's, I think, one of the first movies to have this like big kind of romantic relationship and sex scene between a white guy and a black woman. And at the time, it was written about a lot. Because you also have to consider like for Americans, Americans didn't see a black man and a white woman kiss until fucking Star Trek showed it in the 60s. And No, it was the other way around. It was Captain Kirk kissing a black girl. Oh, yes. Yeah. Every starship captain knows that. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. Uh, uh, a white guy and yeah, a, yeah. a black woman. Yeah. So it's like Corbucci, I think, is so ahead of the curve in so many ways that yeah we could talk about this forever that's crazy that didn't even dawn on me until you said something like i completely forgot that this movie was 1967 and it's like yeah it feels like it's like 74 later yeah yeah, it definitely does feel like a 70s movie (laughs) 
you were out of tempo. Yeah, and I think also something that you said earlier about how some of these movies have characters that feel like hippies, I think definitely the costume design in this movie. So the costumes were designed by Enrico Yobe, who is the husband of Lena Vertmuller, another wonderful revolutionary director in her own right. But they were intentionally meant to look like hippie clothes. And so even though this doesn't have those same like actual hippie characters that are in some of the other Corbucci movies, you do get this real sense of like late 60s, early 70s counterculture in even The Great Silence. And I think that also is what makes it feel like a more of a 70s movie because it's so self-conscious and intentional. I've got a quote here, uh, Corbucci talking about hippies. This is in response being asked about the specialists. The idea was to show that I was against the hippies. Listen, at this time, the Manson business hadn't happened. But there are too many real problems in the world for me to accept the disinterested passivity of these people. Yesterday, Jimi Hendrix died shooting up in London. I'm against drugs and hippies. I wanted to denounce them and the specialists. I'm really violently against their attitude, and I hate Easy Rider. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, I feel like one of the things that fascinates me about depictions of like this sort of hippie youth counterculture in European, but also maybe just cult movies in general is some of them look at hippies as being leftist and being bad for that reason. And others like Corbucci Look at them as being bad because they don't give a shit about anything. Yeah, because they're not actually fucking leftists. Yeah, the, they like, just want to hang out. Yeah, right. like the hippies aren't the fucking reason why the Vietnam War ended. The hippies are the reason why they had marches in the 60s. You know what I mean? Like the the the, the fucking real people are like the fucking Weather Underground and the fucking oh, yeah. Black Panthers. The people who are actually fucking doing the work necessary to have radical change occur. So, yeah, Krapucci's not no, fucking wrong. No, Fuck no, the no. fucking goddamn I mean, hippies. He was, he, he was making Fuck stuff uh, clearly against this stuff. He wasn't just getting stoned somewhere <laughs> and be like, hey. Well, that, I think, is shared between a lot of the radical leftist filmmakers and actors. And it also makes me think of something that you brought up in the last episode when we were talking about the killing of America, how there's this scene where you know john lennon is murdered and there's this (laughs) memorial in central park with these fucking hippies and they're like let's just take a minute to think about how you know love could solve all the problems and it's like the newscaster reports that people were shot in the park that day but it's this it's sort of the same shit where it's like acting like if we just sit around in a drum circle with our hacky sacks yeah that will solve the problems of the world put your goddamn pipe down Read some fucking marks and get in the streets. And they're all fucking rich kids who can well, afford yes. doing that. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. That's, like they don't yeah. have to go to fucking work. And I think that's something that the specialist really hammers home is they seem to be radical on the surface or they seem to be like quote unquote against the man, but they're really just selfish and lazy and entitled and they don't want to do any real work and they don't care about the community they don't care about other people they just want to take advantage in their own way and i think that's why a lot of liberal people watching these movies who think they're on the left see these movies as being right wing and which is wild to me as being like 
you know, counter left or whatever. But that's just because they fucking got liberal brain worms and they're not seeing that these movies. Yeah, they're saying something very, very different than a lot of people read into them. Yeah. And I think that's something that shows up in a lot of my favorite spaghetti westerns is this sort of hatred for false leftism or false revolutionaries like some of Corbucci's movies fit into this cycle that's known as the Zapata westerns and those are basically all focused on the Mexican revolution I mean the first one that really is big is Bullet for the General which I mentioned because Klaus Kinski is in it it's uh, Damiano Damiani's masterpiece about this like Mexican gang of bandits led by world's greatest actor John Maria Volante. You love that fucking guy. I love him so much. But he gets involved with this So do I. <laughs> Thank you. For the record. <laughs> you should too if you knew his history. Oh my god, I can't even say his fucking name. Uh, oh my well, god. he he helped uh, like smuggle I remember like this communist guy like assassinated somebody and he like helped smuggle him out of the country. Yeah, he was he and Elio Petri. Well, we'll do an episode oh, on on wait. them at some point, but he and Elio Petri were like super active leftists in protest, getting into fights, getting arrested. Pretty much whenever they made money that like all of their movies are like openly communist and they're magical, magical people. But (laughs) that's why the Zapata Westerns exist is because these fucking communists were making Westerns and they all have these characters like the one that we were talking about. Franco Nero plays in the mercenary and Compañeros where there's this foreigner who is only interested in making money gets involved with these revolutionaries or people who are trying to be revolutionaries and just takes advantage of them, which is what a bullet for the general is all about. Yeah. That's that's something that I also, I really like about uh fistful of dynamite or ducky sucker is, is the way that it seems like ducky sucker, the black exploitation cut. No, of, my God. Ducky sucker. <laughs> ducky sucker. You just said it with an A. Sorry. You, you keep uh, <laughs> crossing it over with I'm going to get you sucker. That's what's happening in my head. <laughs> well, a wonderful movie. In uh, its own forgive right. me. Uh, but the way that it, it tells the story of the Mexican Revolution and like the protagonist of the film is someone who's just trying to rob banks. Yeah. But it keeps on. Yeah. aiding the revolution in all these different ways and he becomes this revolutionary hero but he's just trying to fucking rob banks the whole time you know <laughs> which i think is something that another one of my favorite actors of all time is so tomas milian is so great at uh, doing in corbucci's movies is he plays this person who is really just out for himself and you know hates the structure of government and the town law and order and kind of winds up coming around to being an actual revolutionary and being an actual good person yeah yeah he like starts off as just some fucking guy who's like helping the revolution on accident on accident and then like somehow or another some like professory character kind of like you know slips him the reading material and he like kind of like oh, i see i see you know he's like being less of like a he's masculine being taken to class yeah 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 <laughs> we've been talking about spaghetti westerns for about 90 minutes now and there's one name we haven't brought up which is crucial to the majesty of these movies clint eastwood 
Oh my god. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Ennio Morricone. Oh uh, yes. Oh my gosh, he really is the just, soul. Yeah. One thing that really stood out yesterday when we were having our marathon that was just like so funny. Not every single movie we watched was a complete gem. You know, somewhere. Oh my god, yeah, we accidentally watched uh, Ringo and his golden pistol because yeah. it it's a some, Corbucci movie. Yeah, it had some good action scenes in but there. But basically what I'm getting at is that sometimes you'll watch one of these movies and it's like, this one's a B or a C. You know, it, it's right. no fucking Sergio Corbucci or Leone. It's, it's one of the fucking other ones. But it There's will, a formula for sure. It will have the greatest score imaginable a, the movie doesn't fucking deserve that score and it's it's not always thanks to Ennio Morricone who is one of the fucking titan composers in the genre it, in but, the world but there's of also, any kind of type uh, of I, I might be getting this name wrong it's like Louis Balakava or Baklava uh, no I know Balkova Balko, oh fuck we're, we're, yes. we're Balkova, fucked here I think, Someone, I think it's Balkova, Balkova. And, there's, and there's also Bruno Nikolai yeah oh. Bruno That's Nikolai an, is a wonderful composer in his own right, but I think he conducted uh, Morricone's scores yeah. when they were being recorded in, yeah. in these cases. It really, it, it just, it sells the movie so well. And like, even when you're watching a B feature, it's hard you not get to get swept. Well, it really, yeah, you do. This one fits too, because it's not so as melancholy. Yeah. It's not as energetic and fun. No. No, no, no. It's, it's not just, as like all over the map. Yeah, for sure. You know, it would have fit. He did Jello scores, and they're he always sure very like dissonant and weird. His, and that yeah. would have fit for this. Too. His like lizard in a woman's skin score reminds me a little bit of this one with all the like downbeat minor chord vocal harmonies yes. and just how like haunting they can be. Yeah. But definitely the formula is. Great score, great lead performances, great director. And I think in the case of something like Ringo and his Golden Pistol, you've got the great director. You just don't have some of the other parts. Yes. You <laughs> did not like Ringo and his Golden Pistol because Mark Damon. Okay. I fucking right. hate Mark Damon. You, I just have to okay. unburden myself here. When he was making Django, Sergio Corbucci wanted Mark Damon to play Django. And it was scheduling conflicts. Thank and they God ended up with for those Franco conflicts. Nero, who which is, is yeah, one it's of like, the handsomest. Honestly, men it's like alive. you love how Mark Damon looks like someone like took some of like the beard clippings from Franco Nero's <laughs> sink and just like threw it at some guy's face and hoped that some of them stuck to it. Oh my God, he's so milk toast. Losing Mark Damon and getting Franco, it's like the best thing that ever happened to Corbucci. It's like you threw your jeans in the wash and you're like, ah oh, shit, I left a $5 bill in there. And then you take them out and, and you got you a $50 have, bill. You take them out and they've been transformed. <laughs> they've been transformed into like some sick leather chaps yeah. with a $50 bill in them. Uh. Yeah, Franco Nero, I think is... Much like Tomas Milian is really a crucial component to so many of Corbucci's great films and just spaghetti westerns in general. Like, oh, for sure. There are a few things that are as delightful as Franco Nero holding some giant ass machine gun with this just look of maniacal glee on oh his face. God. And yeah, it happens that... in almost all yeah. of these movies yeah. he's in. But what works with both of them is that they're very handsome. They but, are. But they still have the grit of like a Charles Bronson 
or or a Henry Silva. Like, even, but they don't have that like ugly chisel. Not to say they're yeah. ugly guys, but they're not like traditionally handsome. Yeah, they're guys who have done modeling work, right. but who also have that sort of bravado. I think in the case of Franco Nero, but. For somebody like Tomas Milian, the thing that I think I love so much about him is he he's like a chameleon. He I feel like the closest modern day example we have is somebody like Guy Pierce, who looks wildly different from movie to movie. And it's like unlike Franco Nero to a degree, I think Tomas Milian isn't concerned with being super handsome in every movie. He He's not afraid to be gross and to play these like almost disgusting, human. pathetic yeah, characters. Yeah, last yeah. year when we watched Almost Human together and Thomas Millian popped up, I was like, oh, yeah, it's that rat faced fucker. And you said something like, it was like, Thomas? shut your mouth. He's so handsome. And I like I thought kinda, I was insane. I did. I did. And, and now that like I've seen more and more films with him in it, I'm like, oh. Dude is hot. Oh, yeah, I see. Hot when he wants to, I mean, he's hot, but there are plenty of times where he's like, I'm going to be gross now. <laughs> he sells death to the highest bidder. He'll sell your life for what he thinks it's worth. He is the mercenary. If you're not ready to buy, be ready to die. So the one last thing I really want to talk about that I love that shows up to a degree in The Great Silence but is really a Corbucci staple is how he has these sort of like non sequitur elements that add so much color to the movies. What do you mean? So this definitely happens in The Specialists. When we watch this, I couldn't stop talking about it, and I'm really sorry because I was like obsessed with it and still am. But he puts Johnny Halliday in this fucking chainmail vest that is so anachronistic. Like, where is the dude getting a chainmail vest in the Old West? And yeah. he wear no, it's wonderful. Yeah. And I feel like the same thing happens in like Sonny and Jed, which we haven't even mentioned, which is another great one. But it also especially happens in Compañeros when Jack Palance has this fucking hawk named Marsha. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait, Marsha or Martha? Marsha. Marsha. And, and that's just what these movies do so well is that like they almost feel like James Bond movies at times where they have these like elements that are thrown in that for, are bizarre, for color yeah. for the villains or for the heroes that just like uh, they're just so unforgettable and stay with you for so long and that's what the best ones do they have these things that you never forget about it's and so, I think it makes them different from American westerns. It's so funny because when I first saw the big gun down and they had like the proto Nazi guy, I thought that's all that was was just this weird flourish that one of the characters is just some weird, scary German, like going to be a Nazi uh, inevitably. And then I wrote, I read the uh, the making of the Wild Bunch. Had no idea how much Germany had their fingers in Mexico, especially during the Mexican Revolution. Yeah, oh, it, for sure. It was like, oh, wow, that, that was actually historically accurate. For sure. And, and these little flourishes that are added to the movies to give them color, to make them stick with you, it's it's very similar to things that you see in, like, Shaw Brothers films, where, like, there's a villain who is just, like, walking around quietly for a while, and then all of a sudden he throws a fucking basket 
and that lands on your head and rips your fucking head off its shoulders. And, and and that feeling that you get watching these movies that it's just like, wow. The excitement and surprise. What's and what's this one going to throw gonna at me? What's going to happen next? You know, <laughs> it's so fucking cool. It's so cool. That's the thing about these type of movies that we cover. Not just spaghetti westerns, but kung fu movies and hammer movies. They're And Euro horror. Yeah, they're like pulp novels for grownups. You know, they're the cinematic equivalent of that. Yeah, they and, totally are. And honestly, I do think that's why as much as I love certain American Westerns and, you know, as a writer, I feel like I always have a lot to say about the subgenre. I just prefer watching spaghetti Westerns because of those like surreal pulpy elements where yeah. they just have so much to say about european history and culture and society but they're also just so fun and insane yeah yeah. oh for sure for sure it's like you took a a a staple of like american studio filmmaking and let it let loose you know and didn't have any of those sort of hollywood constraints right great well i think that's an excellent note to leave things for this episode uh, we're gonna be back in a couple of weeks with jingle bells with on. With fucking jingle bells on. We're oh, we're yeah. we're we're itching to have a little bit of fun. You know, we did Faces of Death. Now we did the most depressing fucking Western movie ever made. Some of the Christmas movies we're talking about aren't very fun. Yeah, don't worry. Yeah, we're still gonna not have fun next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we we got a, we got a little little uh, plan cooked up for uh, for our next episode that I think is gonna be a lot of fun. You guys have any uh, a shout outs you want to do? I guess my only shout out is if you want to hear more about the Zapata Westerns, earlier this year I did an episode on Bullet for the General with the projection booth, and we talk a lot about, you know, the politics that went into that and the locations and stuff like that. So it's just sort of if you've got a taste here and want some more. Oh yeah, check out Mike White's show. It's it's, it's magical. Terrific. Yeah, it's great. Also, sends a point blank episode. Yeah, Lee Marvin. Why didn't Lee Marvin go make spaghetti westerns? What the fuck? I Holy don't shit! Know. What a missed perfect. opportunity that was. Speaking of Lee Marvin, one day we're doing an episode on Dog Day, which has yeah. some some slight spaghetti yeah. western vibes. I fucking love Lee Marvin. All right, see you later, everybody. Bye. Yeah, that's, that's oh, uh, go for it. hour 30.